So I saw this job that said, we need you to be able to host. We need you to be able to write short stories, short form stories, and crawl inside of a giant heavy creature and not have claustrophobia because of no visibility. And I was like, that job sounds like it's for me. Hi, I'm Betsy Zyko, and you're entering a world gone good. Well, hello, my name's Steve, and this is Amazing May, where you get two new episodes every Wednesday, and well, look at that, it is Wednesday. Before we get the first of two new shows going here, let me do my weekly spiel where I beg and plead for you to please, please, please subscribe to our show. Pause this episode, go do it right now. Go ahead, pause, I'll wait. I'm waiting, patiently waiting. Cool, you're back. You've subscribed. God bless you. Now, after you finish listening, uh, how about rating and reviewing us? When you do that, it helps more people discover our good. Oh, and my last request, share us with your friends. So in review, we're going to subscribe, rate, review, and share. And I'm going to stop begging and pleading because this is how we make the world go good. Okay, so my friend Victoria Hoffman emails me and asks me if I want to do this um, storytelling theater show she's guest producing. It's called Rant and Rave. The way the show works is they give you a prompt word and you write a story and then you show up and you read your story to a sold out audience. It sounded terrifying. So of course I said yes, mostly because (laughs) I like to do things that scare me a little, that get me out of my comfort zone and push me, you know, I've been on stage before, I hadn't been on stage in a few years, not in front of a live audience, not since I used to do slideshows, so I'd say it probably been like maybe three years. The prompt word for this show was pain. I wrote a story about losing our cat, then my dad, then our dog, all in the span of six months, and my piriformis issue that resulted from it. I felt that this sort of summed up pain. Um, If you don't know what piriformis is, go look it up, Uh, but trust me, ow, Uh, (laughs) I showed up at the theater, met Vic and the other performers, as well as the regular producers of Rant and Rave, Sarah Fenton and Betsy Zyko, and the show uh, started with a host. Um, This guy is Ron Botita. He is, uh, the best way I could describe Ron is he's a force of nature. I don't want to boost his ego too much if he's listening, but he is just shy of genius and or madman, and um, I just have to say I'm good either way with it. Uh, he's pretty incredible. So it was a great night being in the presence of these other artists, telling stories, feeling protected and safe with a listening and engaged audience. My one goal for the night was to finish reading my entire story to this crowd without crying, and um, well, I didn't reach my goal. Lots of good did come from the night, though. Uh, I was asked back two more times to be a storyteller, and the last time, I was asked to guest produce. But the best part of saying yes um, was that I got to meet and strike up a friendship with Betsy. She has been such a supportive fellow artist to me, especially with this podcast. She sends me emails and texts after she listens to episodes, and she suggests people like Julian and Eric, who were in our Musicals Gotten Good episode, and I asked her a few times to come by 
and be a guest herself. And she kept saying things like, well, we'll see. I get those kind of answers. Um, maybe it was my persistence or maybe it was because I reminded her that I said yes to Rant and Rave three times so she can say yes to World Gone Good once. Whatever the reason, she finally said yes. And what you're about to hear is our oh-so-good conversation from one storyteller to another. Betsy Zyko, after much pleading, um, negotiating. I avoided, I, I avoided you. Um, what other words can I use? Blackmail. <laughs> I have conned you into joining me on the podcast. Oh, I, I know. I didn't have the confidence for it. I know. Well, here you are. You are a form no confidence. She's a former journalist, <laughs> host and producer of NPR and CBS. We got one thing in common: CBS, award-winning Associated Press, and the Society of Professional Journalists winner. Yeah, but most importantly, you consider yourself a radical empath, and that's where we're starting. What is a radical empath? Go. Okay. Convince well- me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I, I, I feel, I, I feel. And I love and I am excited by people and fascinated by their stories. And I have been since my earliest memory. I've cared about people. That's a great thing. Especially right now, don't you think? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, and I, and I, something that came natural to me as a journalist, which isn't what I trained to be, but I discovered I was good at is removing my bias in order to listen to somebody else's point of view that I don't necessarily agree with nor understand and to stay curious. So that's somehow innate in me. And I think it was a combination of nature and nurture. And uh, I grew up, uh, life circumstances when I was a child led to me being, being naturally empathetic and then enhanced by life experience. I grew up with a sister who was at death's door for many years and spent a lot of time at home and in and out of the hospital for years. She was my big sister. I didn't realize until later in life what an impact that made on me in terms of how I I really don't make plans in life because it can end at any time and you just... It sounds um, hokey. I'm, I'm not really into the positive mental attitude movement, but I do have that... Uh, you never know what's going to happen. So just dive in and do it. Which is perfect because that's how you and I met. We met because you do a show called Rant and Rave um, that you've been co-producing with your friend Sarah Fenton. That's right, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, I got it right. Thank God. My memory. <laughs> um, and I was, invited, I, was, <laughs> I was invited to be part of it. And tell everybody what Rant and Rave is. Rant and Rave is a storytelling show live uh, at Rogue Machine Theater. It's been it was started by Roxanne Hart and John Polono. Oh gosh, it's been going for twelve years. And then at some point, I mean, I, I'm I don't necessarily lead with my background, but when I was at NPR, one of my favorite people I worked with as a producer was Harvey Pekar, storyteller, very famous for the comic book American Splendor and later the movie, and. Um, I used to produce stories for NPR commentary, and he was one of my writers, um, Mage Reagan, uh, Diane Keough, and, and several others. And I just loved Rant and Rave because it was storytelling that was immediate, intimate, a word prompt, and then people telling, inspired by a word prompt to just tell a story true to their life, to first person story. 
And after years of attending, I used to say, hey, I, if you ever want a guest producer, I, I would do that. And then one day, you know, John's career blew up and Roxanne and everybody got busy and I stepped in and guest produced. And finally, and, and it went very well. And Sarah Fenton had already come on board to start assisting. And, and they said, hey, we're ready to pass the baton. So Sarah Fenton and I took over and we have six writers each month telling a true story based on a prompt. So the prompt can be love, time, tickle right now that we're at home. Tickle is a show that was a one year ago and we are rolling out those six stories once a month, uh, publishing them now for the first time on the internet. So what did you go to school for? Because you said it, you fell, you kind of fell into your journalistic world that you lived in. But what did you go to school for? Did you go to school? <laughs> so yeah. So when when uh, when it was time to go to college, um, I I was a kid who when I was in third grade and they said, "What do you draw a picture of what you want to do for a living?" I drew a picture of an actress. Nice. So, so that's, you know, in third grade, I, I already knew I took pretend extremely seriously. OK, <laughs> and I didn't know that till later that like when I was playing waitress at my grandmother's house, I had the table set up. I smoked the cigarettes, which were little pretzels, you know, the little mini pretzels. Yes. <laughs> and I would take I would take the highball to the table and I'd put a little um cherry in it but that was the eyeball because you remember the old leprosy song there goes my highball uh -huh. in uh, eyeball into my highball and i would walk around like the vegas waitress and i'd put on this voice and i'd be serving the imaginary patrons so i was always that kid you know i i, I would pretend to be may west in the bathroom every time i you know went pee i couldn't walk beside the math bathroom mirror without uh uh, so it'd be so good to see you sometime. You know, I was that kid. <laughs> and, and, but it was always in my private life that I did these things. Right. I would embody these characters that thrilled me. Morticia Adams, I would walk around with Kleenex on my hands because of her, you know, her... Um, <laughs> Her outfits. I was going to um, say, what were those? They're like, there was a little, uh, she had little extra pieces of like doily at the, at the, at the, at the, at the wrist. Yeah. Yeah, there's extra fabric dangling, and I would stick my my mom would be furious because I'd have my I'd stick my hand through Kleenexes and walk around the house, and she didn't know why. But in private, I was Morticia. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, cut to, uh, the, I never actually did a play until seventh grade. Uh, I was thrown into a play because somebody said Betsy knew how to pretend very well, uh, and. Um, there was a scene where I, where my character was supposed to kiss a boy in the closet, you know, and then he comes out with like lips on his cheeks. So the teacher knows that he was kissed. So we get to that scene uh, where like me and my fellow actor, my seventh grade acting partner, we were backstage and I was supposed to take lipstick like from a lipstick case and draw a little lips on his cheek. Mm -hmm. And when I was back there, he's like, I wouldn't do it. And he's like, do it. You've got to, I've got to walk out with lips on my cheek. And I said, we're in seventh grade. Seventh graders don't wear lipstick. I'm not doing it. <laughs> <laughs> it's not realistic. I was, so I was like this method actor. I was going to say you based it in reality. So, oh, wow. my goodness. <laughs> so anyway, that was seventh grade. And then, and then I was too shy to audition. And then I moved and, and then I, 
finally I did, I got, I worked up the courage my senior year of high school to audition for something. And I got cast in the lead in the two main, a play and a, and a variety, you know, musical piece. And I remember auditioning for both pieces and the directors like looked at me like, where did you come from? Isn't that amazing? Because all this stuff I did in private, I I was just too shy to expose myself. But then I was like, logically, I was like, this is my last chance. I'm a senior in high school. I just have to go and audition no matter what. And then I got cast in the lead in both pieces. So cut to, it's time to go to college. And I don't see myself as an actor. That wasn't my identity. So... Um, and I was terrified of going to college. And the only thing was I was ever good at in school was math. Um, I'm At the time, I didn't know what dyslexia was, but it's cleared later in life that I was super dyslexic and ADHD. They didn't have those diagnoses when I was a kid. I just had focus issues and I had trouble with reading comprehension. So anyway, I was great at math. My dad was an accountant. So I thought, well, I'll just study accounting because I know how I know numbers and the and I chose a school that had a pretty campus because I figured if the campus is pretty I'll go to class because I'll want to walk outside <laughs> those were the when you say what did you study I mean at that at that level of, in my in my I've life n- I've never heard anyone say that that is amazing that that was that's a that the I would think the opposite. If it's too pretty, you wouldn't want to go to class. You'd want to just go outside all the time. Oh no, because I'm because <laughs> I really like I could stay in bed all day. You know, <laughs> I, I love being outside. So I thought that'll be good. So I want to want to go walk to class anyway. So I go to to college. It started at the University of Kansas, studying accounting. And to this day, I cannot remember even taking an accounting class. W- what I did was I signed up for acting classes and dance classes. Quickly decided I'm a dance minor um, because I didn't know there was this thing called modern dance, and I happened to be pretty good at it and and loved like doing experimental sound design when I was a kid I used to carry around a tape recorder and I would tape sounds and put them together and you know splice them together when I was in sixth grade because of my dyslexia I had a terrible time writing book reports but I used to make eight millimeter films as my book reports in order to get an A (laughs) so then nobody knew that I didn't know where the commas went or or didn't know how to spell so anyway (laughs) so cut to so I'm in college and I'm just doing being myself and 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 about uh go close to my junior year, a a girlfriend of mine who I went to high school with said, you know, Betsy, you're an actor. And that's when the light bulb went off. Not until I was a, she said, why don't you just transfer to Columbia College in Chicago? Because you're an actor. So it took, and I said, and it just, then I followed the logic. Oh, that's right. I'll go to an acting school. So I told my parents, I'm, I'm ready to be an actor. (laughs) And they said, my dad is logical. They were, they're always supportive. They're so supportive. And they said, they, they, and, and practical. He, and, and they said, it's not practical, but we can see this is what you want. So they supported that decision. And I transferred to Columbia College. I took everything so seriously that Sheldon Patinkin, the head of our department, used to always say, uh, at the beginning of every semester, at some point, he would say, if what you want is a home and a lawn and children, realize 
what act, being an actor really is. You know, the, the, the chances of that, of you being able to have that and be an actor are very slim. He didn't, he was, it was like the realistic theater college. People didn't just go to college to learn theater and get good at a skill. He was like, this is what a life of an actor looks like. And then my, my Aunt Kathy was hosting an exchange student who was in town with this program called Up With People. Ah! And this German exchange student and, and was, um, wanted to hang out with me and talk, tell me about this program, Up With People. And I thought it was the cheesiest, most ridiculous thing I've ever seen. <laughs> and, and like as a per- theater person, are you kidding? Like turning my nose up at variety show type performing was, you know, what, sure. I, what I did. But when I met this woman from Germany and hung out with her and she told me what they actually do when they're not on stage, they do community service work. They travel around the world. They're in a different city every three days and they're living in people's homes. This light bulb went off to me. I don't want to do this silly variety show, but if I show interest, I will be able to travel around the world and learn about the world and do this for a year. And my parents seem really excited about it. So I went on the road for a year with Up With People. And some of the coolest people to this day are lifelong friends. Uh, I lived in Finland. I lived in Sweden, Germany, Belgium, the Netherlands, uh, all these places in families' homes. And, And then when we then we did a tour of the southern states. I'd never spent any time in the south. I lived in South Carolina, Florida, Georgia. And then when we rolled through Alabama, up with people, did their show. And this uh, news director invited me to spend a day shadowing a reporter and interviewing on their TV show to discuss the program of Up With People. And so I was given permission to take a day off because we worked. We only had two days off a month. Uh, We worked every day and Up With People doing community service and doing the show and rehearsals and everything. Anyway, took a day off, shadowed this reporter. And at the end of the day, I was helping her edit her stories, like in the editing booth, you know, all these little skills that I'd built my whole life, like making book reports with, on Super 8 film and these things I had done. I didn't see these as skill sets that I had. They were just me. So by the end of one day shadowing a reporter, I was helping her put her story together, editing it, you know, writing the copy, even though I didn't know where the commas went and didn't know how to spell. That didn't matter. Nobody saw that. And... um Two months later, this news director called me and offered me a job. Wow. I had no idea that I said, you know, I studied acting. I'm, a, I'm going back to Columbia to finish my degree. And he said, well, this job is now or never. So you've got a decision to make. And in my typical style, I, oh, I do go to logic uh, a great deal or intuition. And um, I said, well, I don't know if I'll if I know what I'm doing, obviously I don't know what I'm doing. I'm not a journalist, but I'll go. What's the worst that could happen? I go, it doesn't work out. And I come back and finish my degree at Columbia. But what happened was it did work out. It turned out I had an aptitude for telling two minute stories because <laughs> that's what you do in local CBS news. Right. And that, that aptitude. And then I ended up with AP awards and other awards. And then I, after two years in Alabama, um, full-time, seven days a week. I was also, I also ended up producing newscasts on the weekends as the anchor, as the news anchor. 
So reporter during the week, anchor on the weekends. And after two years of that, um, I realized that uh, local news was not the story form that I wanted to tell. Uh, when one day uh, the guy who normally did the police beat was out on a story and a double murder-suicide story came in and it was given to me. And I went, did the story, came back, and and it was tragic. And it shouldn't have been news. It was somebody's personal story, and I didn't understand why we were covering it. It had no impact on the community. If it bleeds, it leads. And when I walked into the back to the station after gathering my footage and my interviews, the guy who, you know, the news guy who would have gotten the story and the other news guy backup who was also out on a story and would have gotten it, they walked into the control room and high-fived me. And I, it was one of those moments where, you know, when somebody tells a joke that's in bad taste and you just laugh because you don't know how to confront them. It was one, I, I, I remember like in slow motion, seeing my hand go up to slap his high five. And when that smack of that hand, I knew I don't want, I, I'm not going to be a news reporter because these are not the stories that I think are of value to the community. And with that, I started looking for something else. Um, and I ended up uh, going to Ohio to pursue my life as an actor. And while I was there, there was a part-time job available at NPR that I got. So I was able to start acting and working. And then I worked part-time at NPR. And that's what started acting for me professionally. There's so many incredible things you just said. Because, first of all, one thing I always say to people who didn't go to any college at all, who almost, I have certain friends who didn't go to any college at all. I have no problem with that. But some of them like turn their nose up about it and say, well, it's just, you know, I was ready for life. I was ready to jump in life. I was ready to start my career. And I'm totally for that. That's great for you. But the thing about college is that it's not just going to classes, going to classes, going to classes. And you just said that it's really about life experience. Yeah, it is, And that's, that's the thing is like that I always loved about college for me is I, I had no clue what I was going to do. And my father said, just do me a favor, go one year, just get your basics out of the way and whatever sparks you, you'll go the second year. And then he told me, if you want to come home, my dad once said to me, if you want to be the taxi, a taxi driver, as long as you promise me, you'll be the best taxi driver of all time. You can be a taxi driver. And that was how my dad and I were. We had a very close relationship. But that's the thing about college is like it is that bridge where you meet people who are going to help project you into life, not just teach you things from books. Right. Sheldon, yeah, Sheldon, Sheldon Patinkin was an amazing gift that way. Although those and those lessons are ones that you take any teacher teaches you to see yourself. That's what a good teacher is. Oh yeah. And I love I love that you did up with people. <laughs> it transformed me. And you said something about your father saying as long as you love being a taxi driver, that's and do it well, that's what matters is 
is you just being yourself. And and I learned that when I'm when I first lived in Finland in up with people, I saw I, I saw a society and even my my um, host family. <laughs> oh, I've got stories about that too. I sh- I'm going to go on a tangent eventually. Um, anyway, in in Finland, there is a society that does not value doctors more than teachers, more than garbage pickup people, and it really is, really is that way. And it's a society that operates in a similar way that you just described your dad's philosophy, and it's beautiful. I have a cousin who lives in Finland, uh, Finland, and and she met her husband. He was here in the United States on business and or whatever he was here for, and they got married. And she moved back there, and she has never been happier. Ah, the literacy rate is like what ninety nine percent in the National Theater of Finland. There is a saying that's etched on the wall: "Theater is as important to life as sauna." And I pronounce sauna, sauna, you know. The hot bath that you go to at the spa, but that that's etched into the national theater in Finland. Like every apartment building on every floor has a sauna, every home has a sauna, and Friday night is sauna night in Finland. And so when I arrived, I will never forget arrived. That was the first, you know, outside of the states, the first play, country we visited, and the first family that um, I was there on a Friday. They said, okay, it's time for sauna. I was like, great. So we finished dinner and I arrived into the um, the room. What do you call it? The waiting room that you go to before the sauna, you know, the changing room. And I walk in and the, the entire family's naked. Like the dad, the mom, the kids. And I, I had my robe on and I was like, well, okay. You know, and I just, Yeah, I took off. I went in (laughs) Finland, right? I took off my robe. I I was what twenty years old or something, and uh, yeah, I took off my robe, and there, there, and I remember going, "Look, I know I'm uncomfortable, but they don't know I'm uncomfortable, so I'm just going to go with this and see what see how it feels, you know." And that's how I am, sort of throughout life, and I grew to really enjoy. that the the sauna was an incredible that was an incredible experience. Now, uh, when I originally asked you to come on this show with me, we we haven't even touched on what I want to talk about. But that's fantastic. Well, theater is part of it, but at some point your career took a turn and you fell into the world not just of puppeteering, <laughs> but you rebuild entire animals. Yeah. And you do you, your work is at the La Brea Tar Pits. So right, uh, I when <laughs> when I decided to up and leave Chicago and leave a seventeen year marriage, I got rid of everything that I owned except for what would fit in my car, and I drove to Los Angeles. Because if I was going to leave a seventeen year marriage, I might as well also leave an entire life behind and just pivot to something new, right? Anyway, um. I had no, I had no job. I had no, I didn't know anybody. Uh, the the one couple that I did know here had quickly moved to Portland, and I was just alone in L.A. Not really. I had an, I got uh, represented 
by William Morris for voiceover. So I, you know, I had an agent and, and then I got a, a agent for commercial acting. So like I had that, but really didn't know anybody anyway. So, and I, I didn't get a divorce settlement. Let's just put it that way. So I was looking for anything I could find. And I saw this job that said host. Uh, and I had done some circus arts in my day as a as an as a theater actor. I was always because of my dance background. They're like, we need a trapeze star who can also act, and none of the circus artists we know can act. Betsy, can we train you on trapeze, and you'll be the trapeze star of this play? And so I was, I was, I had become sort of that actor, and so <laughs> like I t- I trained with the Gaunas brothers for three months to be to learn trapeze just to do a play, and it, so I had this sort of circus arts skills. I'm not a circus artist, but I can do, you know, I can stilt walk and I can do fire performing. Anyway, so I saw this job that said. We need you to be able to host. We need you to be able to write short stories, short form stories, and uh, crawl inside of a giant heavy creature uh, and not have claustrophobia because of no visibility. And I was like, that job sounds like it's for me. And I didn't know that it was going to be a Jim Henson creature that had not yet been built. And I didn't really, it didn't even register that it was at the Museum of Natural History in Los Angeles because um, the job posting came up on an actor board. And I was like, oh, wow, circus skills, all this, all these skills. And so I went in and I did the two minute audition was, you know, they gave you six hours to write a story and show off your skills. And so I wrote this sort of scientific piece about centrifugal force and did some of my poi, which is like a fire kit, but I, I didn't light it on fire. And I got the job. And then I realized they had commissioned the Jim Henson Creature Shop to build a saber-toothed cat for the opening of the Ice Age uh, or the Age of Mammals exhibit. And that was in 2010. And I I was like, well, that's cool. I'll do this for a while. You know, I'll just, and I was like, when I found out it was at the museum, you know, of course, you know, I had this like, uh, well, I had this identity, you know, issue at first, like, oh, working at the museum, I'm an actor. You know? But then I was like, oh my God. That, isn't that silly? I mean, it's so silly. But quickly, quickly. It tried- I, thought, I, thought, I thought it would be the other way. Like, I'm at a museum. I matter. Well, I do. But like, it, it quickly transformed. Now, this is before, you know, when I like, I had like, do I tell people I work at a museum? I'm an actor. Can I be taken seriously? Oh, yeah. yeah. You know, that, yeah, yeah. that whole, you know, identity, the BS. But um, it has been the most amazing. Like, little did I know that 11 years later, I would still, on the weekends, be crawling into a Jim Henson 75-pound animatronic saber-toothed cat and roaring around as a as a teaching artist, to, you know, l- you know, l- having people learn about the Pleistocene era and these megafauna that lived in Los Angeles and, you know... 200,000 years ago. It's, it's, it, but by doing it through theater arts, it's incredible. And they built this creature on my body. I, you know, there were three of us were hired and I think I was like the middle range of size. So they chose me and I went, I, and I love like a physical challenge. So they, when I went into the creature shop, they're like, we better do a part of your body at a time because, you know, it's very intense and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, no, try, I can do it. I can do the whole body. So like 
everything except for my little tiny face, you know, the little circle of my face was covered in this plaster and put in the position of like a what the cat would need to be. So and sort of my arms were elevated, but I was basically on all fours in a quadruped position. And after I don't even know how much time it took for that for that plaster to solidify, but it got to the point where it was so intense and I had to be still. You can't move when that's when that's drying, otherwise you'll crack the cast. And my my boss was within earshot and I was I whispered to her because I didn't want the Henson creature shop people to know. I just said, Could you put a bucket under my face? Because I think I might throw up. It was so intense. Wait, she, is it because is it because it's, is it is it constricting as it as it as it hardens? As it hardens, well, you're not allowed to move. If you move, yeah, you'll yeah. you'll crack and ruin the whole thing. So um, it starts. It just starts getting hot. Yeah, yeah. And and your brain must start playing playing tricks on you. No, I I love and I'm. I'm a high risk activity person. I put, I, I put I put fire in my mouth and eat it, and that's fun for me. Oh sure. Okay. So I didn't I didn't mind the discomfort. Like I wanted the I wanted the challenge of being able to. It was staying still. Yeah. While because what you wanted and and suddenly I just had this urge to throw up and I, I didn't I I contained it all and never told anybody. Again, I'm saying these things publicly for the first time. Well, they're all going to be held against you by my my massive million person audience. I know, but if you go to the Jim Henson Creature Shop website, they uh, I think they still have a picture of my body mold there. And at one one point, I went to the shop to um, we were doing some repairs or something, and I saw my body, my my quadruped form sitting on a shelf, and I, I just love that. It's the coolest. It's the coolest, coolest job, and it's on the weekends. So I I. And it's just my happy, my happy place. You are the, a builder now. So you went from being in it to building it. Well, I've always been a fix-it gal since an early age. Anyway, so naturally, when I see these animatronics working, this is an incredible machine piece of machinery. The man who engineered it was recruited by the military. And he's like, no, I want to make puppets. Because the engineering on these animatronic creatures are phenomenal and it's got three servos like military grade servos to operate the head and and i just like watching how it works and i i know that i can figure it out if i'm just given the permission and so my um supervisor eli presser who's an incredible puppeteer he's been puppeteering since he was 14 um and uh, was trained, uh, you know, through an apprenticeship at Red Moon Theater in Chicago, where I, I also worked and did stilt walking for back in the day. Anyway, Eli like saw that I had this aptitude, and he he trusted me and started showing me how to fix things. And I became he, he hired me on as his technical um, coordinator, so I can repair these beautiful creatures now, and um, it's pretty awesome. And a Triceratops too made by Earth, the company Earth in uh, Australia. Well, I normally end with three questions, but I actually have six questions. Ready? Yeah. Jesus. Question number one, what would you tell 17, 18-year-old Betsy right now if you could talk to her? That voice you hear is telling you the truth. And you're going to have a great adventure. Wait till you see these chapters unfold, page by page. It's going to be a big surprise. 
and you're going to love it. Question number two, what's good about Betsy right now? So I spend three hours a week calling people who are at their end of life. I'm a hospice volunteer. I have been for 25 years. And I just check in every week with people. Now that in the pandemic, I can check in with a lot of people. Usually it's just one or two at a time. That's, uh, I, I don't know what's good. What's good. What's the question? That's the answer. That's perfect. Okay. Number three might be the most important question. Because my other person, my husband, will be very, very happy when I ask this question. (laughs) What was it like doing the Mothman prophecies? Oh, my gosh. (laughs) You didn't think I would ever bring that up, would you? Holy So much fun. Okay, Mark Pellington, the director, let me tell you... the audition was for a newscaster, right? And I'm like, I got this. I can newscast, you know, in my sleep. Um, and I was so excited. So I went in, did the audition. We had to improvise. And I, and after I was done, Mark Pellington's like, you nailed it. Yeah. What was it like working on set? Uh, I had, I was all dolled up in my hair and makeup ready to be, you know, the reporter that like the perfectly put together reporter and when we drove out to the location it in true pittsburgh fashion it downpoured and and we sat in a car for most of the day waiting for one window like looking at the sky this is before we had cell phones and smartphones waiting okay the sky's gonna open up now go 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 so if you look at my scene look at the hair i mean you this is the hair of a woman who you know the, the the humidity and the hair are just so it's just a whole that was that's why the hair looks like that and i don't even care i don't i think it's hilarious i loved that i loved being stuck in that car all day and then going out there running and gunning it just like a real reporter does right and that's the scene that did end up and i you know i ended a lot of the the ending of that was impro- improvised so that was and then I did, when the film got put together, I didn't realize Richard Gere was going to be watching me and being, I was such a pivotal realization in the, in the movie. You know, I was just happy not to get cut from it. Where can people find you online? Where can people follow you? Uh, on Instagram and TikTok, I'm Betsy Boobop. Two final questions, both of which can reflect back on anything we've already talked about or anything you want to say, who inspires you? So I looked up this word because I've heard your podcast and I thought, inspire, uh, when I, I think so many people have inspired me. And then I thought, well, what's the difference between admire and inspire? And inspire is somebody who will prompt you to want to do something creative is what I recall from the definition that I looked up last night. I see my parents as inspiration. Um, the reason I've been a lifelong volunteer because of them. Uh, 
and my sisters, my my two older sisters, and so everybody in my family. And and my spouse, who is the type of person who lives I hate this phrase, lives life to the fullest, but but truly he just this morning over coffee he was um painting um and fixing a, a table that he built out in the backyard. You know, uh, we have so much fun together. Picking up, you know, we, we go on walks and he's always like looking at the the colors of the sky and he's like, wow, look at that. Wow, look at that. And I'm just like, huh? Oh, yeah. And, and living with somebody who is visual like that, because he's, even though he's a screenwriter and a director, he's first an artist. And I find that really inspiring. And the final question, which you already know because you already listened to the podcast, tell me something good. <laughs> I forgot about that one. Surprise. Listening is good. Listen. Listen more often to things than to beings. It will take you to yourself. You have a guide that will guide you. Listen. Listening is good. Thank you, Betsy, for sharing your good. Visit Rogue Machine Theater and rant and rave online. Support theater and support the arts. Next time on World Gone Good. I mean, I love cooking, but... The best part of it is when we are exchanging with our masks on and six feet apart and, you know, and, and just having that conversation of how are you surviving? How are things going? Are you okay? Did you get the vaccine? Is your parents okay? How's the family? Like that little bit of conversation to me was really what was uh, important. John Lawrence Rivera immigrated to this country, started a career in a bank, left the bank to explore his passion in theater, and then the pandemic hit. And so he opened Flip Kitchen, where he feeds his community for free every single night of the week. John is so good, and his story is so good. But best of all, there's a twist you won't see coming that ties back to the show that you just listened to, and I promise you... When you hear my reaction, I can't wait to just for you to have your own. You are going to laugh so hard when you hear what it is. The world is a lot smaller than we think, and that's what makes it so good. Your second episode of World Gone Good's Amazing May is already up. You go listen to it right now if you want. Until then, be good. <laughs>